Politics, Politics, and Life Sciences Radio, also known as PLS Radio, is a show about the interplay of life sciences and politics. PLS Radio is hosted by Dean L. Finelli, Ph.D., an intellectual property attorney in Washington, D.C., whose practice focuses on issues connected to the life sciences industry. PLS explores cutting-edge topics involving the biotech and pharma ecosystems, political and governmental policy issues affecting the biotech and pharma industries, and much more. PLS guests include scientists, business, medical professionals, media personalities, newsmakers, and political leaders. Politics and Life Sciences Radio is your place for hot topic discussions and real news in the life sciences industry. Now, it's time for Politics and Life Sciences Radio with your host, Dr. Dean L. Finelli. Good afternoon, this is Dean Finelli with Politics and Life Science Radio, where we talk about all the issues in the life science industry and the politics that affect the industry and try to sift through a lot of that misinformation that's out there. I'm very excited today to have as our guest, Mr. Harry Nelson. Uh, Mr. Nelson is an author of the best-selling book, The United States of Opioids, A Prescription for Liberating a Nation in Pain. He's also an attorney, uh, and we'll bring on uh, Mr. Nelson in a few minutes after we See what's going on in the life science industry. More than 6.4 billion shots of the various vaccines have been administered globally, which is really just an amazing feat considering we're less than two years out from the start of the pandemic. And uh, this really is a global effort when people, you know, it's really starting to uh, be not a compelling argument when you hear people say, hey, these drugs or these vaccines, excuse me, are not safe. You know, six billion doses have been administered. We do know there are uh, side effects and adverse effects that have uh, occurred very rarely. But generally speaking, these are very effective and very safe vaccines. Uh, Good news for younger people. uh, Pfizer has submitted its emergency use authorization application to the FDA uh, for authorization of its mRNA vaccine in children from five ages of five to 11. Uh, A lot of anxious parents out there that are awaiting the availability of a vaccine for children. So this is certainly good news. Uh, It would appear when you look at statistics, there's about 25% of parents out there that were surveyed said they'll definitely get their kids vaccinated as soon as the vaccine is available. Uh, About 25% said they would never do it for their children. And there's about 50% in the middle that are in that wait and see category. We know uh, Pfizer is an mRNA vaccine and there has been, have been issues of uh, very rare side effects of myocarditis in uh, younger males that have received the mRNA vaccine. So it will be interesting to see if um, that hesitancy or that concern leads into hesitancy uh, but overall, uh, certainly good news having the availability of a vaccine for 5 to 11-year-olds, especially with the upcoming flu season, kids getting back into school activities, kicking off over the last month. Uh, the, a lot of talk about booster shots. Booster shots uh, are now available for high-risk individuals. Those individuals that have had transplants uh, are immunocompromised and generally those people over 65 that had those comorbidities that we talked about. Uh, We've seen there's data out there that suggests 
that after a period of time, there's a dramatic uh, decrease in the effectiveness of the vaccine in this cohort of people. So certainly uh, getting a booster uh, to reinvigorate the immune system and stimulate those antibodies uh, is necessary for certain people, but the general public, uh, we're not there yet. I guess at some point we're all going to need a booster, but at this point, uh, limited to those uh, high-risk individuals. Uh, Canada uh, is issuing some uh, very strict vaccine mandates for uh, travelers 12 and older on trains and, and airplanes. And we've also heard California, Los, specifically Los Angeles uh, City Council, had green-lighted a vaccine passport, which is among the strictest in the U.S., which basically says anyone age 12 and old, over must be fully vaccinated before they can enter any type of restaurant, gym, or other indoor facilities. Pretty uh, strict uh, mandate coming out of uh, Los Angeles County, which, you know, at, at this point, you know, we certainly can recognize why uh, they would do this for the public safety, but we are seeing generally, uh, even with the Delta virus that's really encompassed the U.S. over this summer and still continues to uh, really bear down on the U.S. that although that is still the case, we are seeing declining numbers. So uh, kind of brings the question up, you know, is this a little too late? Should they have acted sooner with this mandate over the summer? It seems to me that with the declining numbers, you know, it may not really be necessary to have this mandate because as you sh I'm sure you can imagine, once this mandate goes into effect, uh, you know, removing it is probably uh, going to take some time. So in any event, L.A. has become kind of a bellwether for uh, this very strict vaccine passport rule uh, in L.A. County. I'd like to bring on our guest now, uh, Mr. Harry Nelson. As I mentioned, uh, Mr. Nelson is the author of the best-selling book, The United States of Opioids, A Prescription for Liberating a Nation in Pain. Uh, Mr. Nelson is also the founding partner of the law firm Nelson Hardiman, where his practice focuses on innovation and health in healthcare and life sciences, including uh, work related to behavioral health, telehealth, cannabis, psychedelic ventures. He's received national recognition for his efforts to change the conversation around America's uh, overlapping overdose addiction and mental health crisis. So uh, very timely issue and glad to have uh, Mr. Nelson join us. Uh, Mr. Nelson, thank you for your time today. Yeah, of course. Uh, nice to be with you today. So one of the uh, interesting things about the book that you've published is you really delved into the details of, you know, what's, what the issues are. And I think it's easy. A lot of people tend to look at the opioid crisis as the pharmaceutical industry taking advantage of Americans. And, you know, there may be some truth to that uh, or may not, but you've delved into a lot deeper issues of other entities and basically a, a problem with the healthcare system overall. Can you uh, get into that in a little detail of, you know, what is what was the, the underlying issue that caused this really terrible, you know, problem that has really been going on in the U.S. for the last decade? So, yeah, I mean, a lot of my goal in writing the book was to draw attention to the fact that 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 the pharmaceutical industry and, you know, the marketing of uh, OxyContin by by Purdue Pharma was just one small piece of the puzzle. And really that we had that there were a sort of a whole series of systemic causes uh, that really enabled this crisis. And, and so one of them I, I, that I think is really important to understand is has been our medical system's approach to pain going back for 100 years uh, and, and the way that we have really not 
ever had a a a a, 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 a medical training for doctors on how to address pain. We went through a period in the early 20th century where we had a massive crackdown, the first crackdown on opioids, uh, and basically scared a whole generation of doctors out of prescribing for pain. And then over the course of 50 years, we flipped over to basically demanding that doctors treat pain. And, you know, the Joint Commission on Accreditation of Healthcare Organizations was demanding that hospitals survey patients on how they felt about their pain and doing all kinds of things that were, in, 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 you know, incentivizing uh, more pain treatment for providers. And I also think that you can put some of the blame at the feet of the health insurance industry, which prefers pills as a simple solution uh, to be a more in- intensive and, and expensive treatments. You can put the certainly put some of the responsibility at the hands of regulators who have uh, um, uh, at our medical education system. And, and that, that was a big part of my theme. I, I also believe that there's a deeper underlying crisis that we are We've been afraid to really tackle of what is the relationship between uh, the suicide rate rising and uh, relative to, uh, for example, overdoses of, of rising rates of anxiety and depression and a deep and deeper crises in American society. So um, my, my intention in writing the book was in part was to make sure that we were thinking about the crisis more comprehensively and not just as a story of, of you know, the bad guys that uh, at pharmaceutical industries without without whitewashing any of the of the, you know, unfortunate and terrible things that were done, just looking at it much more in a nuanced way as a problem with multiple uh, causes. Can you put into perspective uh, just, you know, how bad was the opioid uh, crisis that, is it over? Are we still going through it? And at its worst point, how bad was it in the United States? Oh, it's the worst point is actually right now. Um, It's never been worse. And that's part of part of what's really interesting. I'm actually working on a uh, in the early stages of working on a new book is about how we've actually reached a point with it sort of uh, where, where we've cut down on doctor prescribing over the last decade by over 70 percent. So the problem is no longer prescription uh, drugs. It's now uh, it's now fentanyl, toxic fentanyl on our streets, uh, a lot of counterfeit pills that are being trafficked. And, and, and so the, the, we are we went at, we had ninety three thousand uh, deaths overdose deaths uh, attributed to opioids, uh, or sorry, to all drugs, but uh, of which more than two thirds was opioids uh, last year. And, and we were expecting that number to just keep going up. So we're, we're, we're approaching or, or we're somewhere close to a million dead over the last 20 years uh, uh, from, it depends, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of looking at all drug deaths as opposed to just overdose, because I think there's a market efficiency, uh, but the problem is worse than ever. And we're now talking about a problem of a toxic drug supply on the streets that people are using to, 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 because they can't get drugs in the healthcare system. So when we, when we look at the opioid crisis, has the industry, you know, as you mentioned, this has been going on for 20 years. Has the industry made changes that would, you know, prevent such an instance? And I would imagine, you know, the prescription drugs, as you mentioned, was probably what initially caused this, but what, what sort of remedies has the industry made in the healthcare and the government, for example, made to kind of prevent something like this from happening again? Sure. So, well, so it, within the pharmaceutical industry, you know, this is part of, this is one of the kind of interesting conundrums. The, the FDA has gotten much more aggressive about regulating and requiring much more provider education and how these drugs are, are used. The irony with the uh, with this approach is that um, 
what happens when you when you teach? It turns out that when you teach doctors how to, uh, uh, you know, and you require pharmaceuticals to provide much more education, is that doctors understand medications better and actually use more of them. So there hasn't really been uh, um, a, an effective change. If if you are in the camp that believes that the problem was doctors prescribing too much, which I'm not, uh, then there, there hasn't really that that's that's been the approach there. The two major changes that we've seen in, uh, you know, in terms of our public health system have been the, distri- the distribution of uh, naloxone, better known by the brand name Narcan, which is an overdose reversal drug, and putting that into healthcare settings, putting that in the hands of law enforcement. That has been extremely effective. It, it's really a, 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 it's a Band-Aid in the sense that when it, it's a drug that's administered when someone is in the middle of in over, uh, you know, an overdose, having respiratory distress at at, at a risk of a heart attack, and and it reverses the effect of the drug. So that's been a positive step. It doesn't really get to the underlying problem. And the other thing that we've seen is that uh, we've seen a dissemination of much more effective opioid treatment in our addiction treatment system. So our, you know, we didn't cover uh, addiction treatment in our health insurance system for until really before the Affordable Care Act, by and large. And, and even now, we're still in a period where health insurance plans are uh, really being forced to, be, to, to begin to provide coverage. But we're seeing much more effective treatment for opioid use disorder, for example, and other forms of substance use disorder with medications as opposed to, um, you know, the traditional abstinence-based approach, which has dominated our addiction treatment system. I would say those are the two other, you know, major changes that the health system has made. Um, but uh, we have we have a long way to go uh, towards actually really solving this crisis and the rising year over year death rate and hospitalization for overdose rate. When you think about culpability for this opioid crisis that really, as you mentioned, is still engulfing the U.S., we see Purdue Pharma has been in the news as one of the you know, so-called bad players and bad actors and, you know, potential criminal liability there. How pervasive was this in the pharmaceutical industry or was it limited? Was this these bad actions limited to Purdue Pharma or was it more pervasive? I, I don't think there are there's there are very few stories that were as colorful as the, you know, outrage, uh, the outrageous uh, behavior that was going on at Purdue Pharma. So there were a few other players in the industry. We saw uh, a criminal trial against uh, insist for the and its uh, leadership for the uh, marketing of substance, there were there were a handful of opioid manufacturers that engaged in really um, aggressive marketing. But it was I, I do not regard the problem as pharmaceutical marketing uh, by and large. Uh, it, it's definitely a piece of the puzzle. And and uh, but but there were there really you know what we're seeing as these opioid trials are playing out currently uh, is that the the rest of the the pharmaceutical industry uh, was not nearly so aggressive. And the real problem was that, uh, you know, you had a perfect storm of patients who were uh, massively in pain and really wanted these these medications. We had doctors under the, you know, really operating um, under the impression that their job was to get these medications out there. And the whole it's really I, I, I encourage people to think about it much more as a multiple points of system failure, although without without taking anything away from the really bad behavior of Purdue and, and a handful of others, but I would not say it was a system, systemic uh, uh, issue across the pharmaceutical industry. This is Dean Finelli with Politics and Life Science Radio. We are talking with Mr. Harry Nelson, author of the best-selling book, The United States of Opioids, A Prescription for Liberating 
a nation in pain. One of the things you point out in the book is uh, sort of a guide for what we can do to kind of educate our children. Obviously, you know, as you mentioned, we're still in the midst of this. And, you know, as children kind of get into their teenage years, what are what's some guidance you can give to parents to, you know, teach their kids to avoid this or, you know, it's probably easier said than done or just any methods that you've seen that work to kind of steer children in the right direction? Yeah, so I, I, I'm a big believer that we need to be looking for solutions outside of just our healthcare system and government regulation and that parents and, and schools need to take this uh, directly into their own hands. And so, um, you know, one of the things that I, one, one of the issues I think is, uh, is starting with, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's an effort of, of, it's a question of how do, you, how do you really engage in prevention and how do you actually engage when kids are at risk? What we see is that the real risk age has dropped dramatically. That's been one of the, the, the discoveries is that we now have kids as young as uh, fifth and sixth grade is really where the risk issue starts. And um, one of the things that I, I mean, there's, there are, there's a lot that we can do just to just create more awareness of kids, uh, but within our kids. But I think the, the biggest thing that, that I discovered in the course of the research and interviews that I was doing with families uh, for the book was that so often the story of the entry into substance use with kids starts with an, an, a mental health issue that is not addressed. So, and, and I believe we have a pervasive problem of anxiety uh, among very young children in this country. And, and there's a shame. It's really, I think, two layers. Number one is we have a massive problem of anxiety hitting very, very young ages. Like I, 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 there's some, there are some uh, researchers I spoke to who, who, see, who, 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 who assert that it, uh, it starts as young as ages of three and four, you see manifestations of anxiety in, in many, many children. And then wrapped around anxiety and other mental health issues is uh, shame. And I think that part of what we can do as parents is to avoid is a to be looking for um, those warning signs, right? A lot of times anxiety in children gets mistaken for autism spectrum disorder and, and really taking seriously our kids' mental health issues and deciding, deciding when you need professional help, but also just trying to help our kids create effective coping strategies and then just doing whatever we can to take the shame away. Because so often the story of how kids get into uh, uh, drugs is a story of thinking that they're the only person in their school or in their class who's feeling a certain way and really using the drugs as a way to cope with that. And, and as, as parents, we need to learn to talk directly to our kids, I believe, and not treat this as something that's, uh, that's, that's, you know, that's, that's, that we can't ever, uh, talk, you know, we, we, we can't, we can't touch. I think, I think these aren't easy issues as a parent to talk about with kids and it, it requires different, different messaging and different language at different ages. Um, but, but I think to me, that's the single biggest, uh, piece that we can do to raise more resilient kids who are less vulnerable, uh, um, as whether it's as a result of mental health, uh, issues or whether it's a result of shame to, um, to exposure to these, uh, to these, to the, and, and to this risk. That's really great information. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mr. Nelson. I want to thank our guest, uh, Mr. Harry Nelson, uh, best-selling author of the United States of opioids, a prescription for liberating a nation of pain and founding partner of the law firm, Nelson Hardiman, uh, for joining us today. Strongly recommend you go out and take a look at his book. 
uh, and thank you for all that valuable information. Uh, until next week, we appreciate you joining us. We're on Politics and Life Science Radio, where we talk about all the issues in the life science industry. Thank you for listening to Politics and Life Sciences Radio with Dr. Dean L. Finelli. For more information, check us out at facebook.com slash politics and life sciences.